You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I would like to begin uh, calling in the spirits to be with us here today. So I call out to my ancestors, to all of those who bring that which is good and true and beautiful in my ancestral lines to me here in this time that I am alive. And I call out to yours. I call out to all of your ancestors who bring that which is good and true and beautiful in your family lines to you, that you can bring this wisdom and this experience, this um, beautiful clarity from hindsight that you can bring these energies into your life as well and i call out to these ancestors to circle around us here today to join us the living and to help us to do what we are called to do in our lives in a good way so i call out to all of these ancestors to gather around and to assist us to help us to understand how to be part of this great complex beautiful tapestry of life that is manifest here on the face of this planet and we ask them in particular to help us at this time this time of a new world we ask them in particular to help us to learn how to live with others better how to live with others who think differently than we are help to live better with others who look different than we do and help to live better with those things here on this planet that are not even human And in particular, how to live in a way that is sane, in a way that supports all life. And so we ask the ancestors who have struggled with these things in their own time to come and be with us and to help us to learn from those who have gone before us that we might be wise and make our descendants proud. And with the ancestors gathering round in great gratitude, let us pull our energy now into our bodies. Draw it from our head to our heart and our heart down into our bellies. And as we reach from our bellies into the earth, let us take a moment as if we are all each actually placing our hands and our feet, perhaps our forehead on the earth and taking a moment to give thanks. Give thanks to this exquisite being and the wonder of her dreaming that brings life as we experience to the face of this planet. We give thanks for beauty. We give thanks for diversity. We give thanks for those strengths to be found in life that we have not yet come to understand. And we give thanks for the great compassion uh, in this dream that allows us to heal, to change, and to right any wrong as long as we are still living and allows the living even to right the wrongs of those who have gone. And so we give thanks to the earth for the wonder of life, and we ask the earth to help us to participate more fully in our peace of this great all that is. And so we extend our energy down into the center of the earth as this primary act of grounding that we might be able to do exactly what we have just asked for. And so we send our energy down into the very center of the earth and reach into this energy and draw this energy up, drawing in this energy that is the very heart of rest, restoration, refreshment, nourishment, replenishment. We call this energy up from the earth to draw into ourselves all of the wisdom of manifestation, how to be here in form in a good way. And we call these energies up, up into our bodies, into our day, into these proceedings. And with these energies, let us continue to choose to be grounded, to live in our bodies, and to experience a sense of home, of place, of belonging. To know this so deeply that we know where we stand. And that we stand up for life in its many forms. We call out to the energy of the earth and ask it to help us to feel a sense of connection and interconnection with all living things. Help us to have a moment in each day of feeling oneness. Our true place, our tiny infinitesimal place in the great oneness of all things. And from that moment of awareness... 
may we draw into ourselves a sense of our own right relationship with ourself, right relationship with others, right relationship with the environment, and right relationship with the spirit world. And for all of this, we give great thanks to the earth, and we draw the energy of the earth up from our bellies to our hearts. We draw it up just like a crystal clear spring, bringing refreshing water to the face of the earth. We draw this energy up into our minds, and we draw this energy up from our minds out and up through the sky, whatever weather it holds above you, out through the atmosphere and out into the cosmos. And we reach all the way up to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever name you know this energy, name it. Know yourself in it and it within you and draw this energy down. Drawing into yourself, drawing into this day, drawing into these proceedings, the energy of blessing, the deep, profound energy of infinite blessing, of protection, of devotion, of commitment, of benevolence, of the beneficence of our universe and all the wisdom of the cosmos. And we draw this energy down from the sky, drawing it through all the layers of the sky down into our head, from our head to our heart, our heart to our belly, and we send it to the center of the earth. And we take a minute here in this place of the living, in the body, in the belly, in the heart, in the mind simultaneously and take a moment and embrace the two great lovers, earth and sky, yin and yang, embracing in the big love, the big Tao that has given birth to all things, this experience of form, this ever so convincing illusion. We give thanks for this and thanks for the love from which it comes. And we invite that energy to call forth the spirit of our own heart, to awaken the spirit of the heart. And we ask the heart to open, to be that place that calls up the fiery passions of the belly that they can be known and remembered in the heart and draws down the crystal clarity of the mind so that we can understand how to do things in our time, in our life, in a good way. And with these energies coming together in the heart, we let them dance and be in this dynamic energy that gives birth to a third energy, which is a sense, a feeling, a knowing of our soul's true purpose. And may we find in that very same heart the courage that it will take in this day to do something, large or small, to bring that gift, that uniqueness, that understanding of your soul's purpose ever more fully in the manifestation in your life. May you draw from this love the ability to bring your gifts to the world. So for the earth below, the sky above, the ancestors gathered round, and the heart in the center connecting it all, we give thanks to these spirit energies for being present with us here today. And I give thanks to the human spirits, the spirit of Robin and Amanda and David and Stephen and all of the listeners who have been able to donate to the show. I give thanks for you because you help me to keep the show alive and on the air, to pay our bills, uh, to be in good relationship with those that support us in making the show happen. And so I give great gratitude to those of you who are able to donate, large or small. It all goes directly to keeping the show on the air, and I am grateful. And I'm grateful for all of you that donate something in some way to help the show to grow stronger. Um, For those of you that understand the technology to link and connect and make all of those associations out there on the web that would help people to come and find the show. I give thanks to those of you who take these teachings into your life and do your best to live them, who step up to the challenges and change the very way they are acting in the world. I give thanks to all of you for your questions, for your show ideas, and the many ways that you are engaging with the show and helping it to stay alive, to be alive, to grow, and uh, to be meaningful to people. So thank you. And for those of you that are wondering how you might support the show, because if you've been moved by this show in any way, even moved into irritation and frustration, you have been moved. And to allow yourself to be moved by the heart into action, not the mind, not the fear, but the heart into action, is at the essence of shamanism and shamanic teachings. And so do something shamanic. Allow yourself to be moved from the heart into action in life and do something to support the show and if you'd like to donate you can go to whyshamanismnow.com people who listen to the show regularly still don't know the show has its own website and all of the archives are there as well so if you've got some snafu with iTunes you can go there 
And if you don't even use iTunes and you've on Android or whatever, you can also go there. All of the archives are there. You can access them in any way. They are free and available for anyone who can get on the Internet. And for those of you that would like to donate, you can click the Donate button and donate any amount, large or small. If you are interested in a monthly reminder because you wanted to do a monthly withdrawal, please let us know. And Andrea and I will set that up for you. So thank you all. Uh, in in uh, many, many ways for all you were doing uh, to help me to keep the show alive and well. And so this week we are live. We're sort of continuing with our show from last week. If you have questions about today's topic, you are invited to call in at 512-772-1938. You can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site. Um, and you can also just email me at christina at lastmasscenter.org. And um, I would be happy to read your question on the air. And you can email me later. Sometimes you guys ask enough questions, I just do a show about questions. Um, So anyway, today's show, however, is a continuation of last week's show, which was shamanism is not an excuse to be crazy. (laughs) And today's show uh, kind of continues on that topic about, and we're looking at nature and madness and shamanism. So... Back in the day, Joseph Campbell wrote that a mad person and the mystic are all in the same ocean, but the mystic and the saint are swimming while the mad person is drowning. So Joseph Campbell continued to say that the mystics are prepared for the ocean. They have usually been raised in or studied a spiritual tradition. They know about the ocean before they venture into it, while the mad person Uh, has no preparation or guidance. In some cases, they are not even aware of the ocean's existence until they find themselves immersed in it. And this is a very important concept for people interested in shamanism because the shaman is another person who learns to swim. In fact, that is the essence of an authentic shamanic initiation. This ability to find yourself in an ocean that is foreign to you and to learn to swim before you drown. And in essence, through your relationship with spirit, to teach yourself to swim. And that is the essence of shamanic initiation, which we talked about last week, and and tried to draw the parallel so that we could understand how that experience is distinct from a kind of um, dysfunctional madness. So there's a functional madness and perhaps a dysfunctional madness or perhaps simply a madness that has not been allowed to run its course in such a way that it can become functional. But anyway, the point is that in shamanism, there is a very clear distinction between those who are able to find their way out of their initiatory crisis and those who are not. And so those who do not make it through their initiatory experience are not honored for, are honored for their connection to spirit and they are included in community, but they are not considered shamans. And this is, this has been challenging for many people who have had some breaks with reality and find a certain kind of comfort in shamanism and that idea that it's possible that that experience they had was trying to be useful, that there's great... A relief in that and for some people an affirmation but at the same time we have to look at whether or not the experience ran its course did you learn to swim or did somebody drag you out of the water and in our contemporary world mostly people are getting dragged out a dragged drug pulled out of the water um, and not allowed to drown or learn to swim so uh, what's important, what's most important is that even in a shamanic culture, a first contact, truly first people indigenous culture, there was madness in that dysfunctional sense. And these were people that were cared for and held close because they obviously were being profoundly touched by spirit. But no one listened to their interpretation. Because they weren't deeply rooted in reality, that they weren't able to um, make a distinction themselves. They weren't able to find within themselves, through their relationship with spirit, a distinction between swimming and, and drowning. And if you can't swim, you can't be trusted to interpret accurately for the people. 
And so important in the shamanic initiation is that the initiate must, must teach themselves how to swim before they drown. In other words, the work of a novice is to learn to access one's gifts in an accurate and useful way, in a way that doesn't harm oneself or others. And it's the ability to reach out into the oneness from that vantage, and then from that vantage point to look back at the human and then come up with something useful from that. So training and usefulness are necessary, whether we're talking about a shamanic healer or a mystic or a visionary. And so the fact is that we're actually all in the ocean. We are all in that very same ocean with all the more than human beings as well. All of the, the not human living things. Everything is in that ocean. And the ocean is part of the oneness just as we are. It's just a big ocean. So the question really in this show and last week's show really has to do with why are contemporary people entirely unprepared for the fact that there is an ocean at all and utterly unprepared to swim in it. Because this ocean, and this is the let's get with it people part, the ocean has got shallow water and it's got deep water, the blue water and the black water. And from a shamanic perspective, everyone needs to be able to swim in the shallow end. Everyone. Now, the mystics and the visionaries and the shamans may be the ones that navigate the deep waters. But we're all in the ocean with all life. We are all part of that oneness. And everyone needs to be able to keep from drowning in the shallow end. So let's look at how we got so confused about something our ancestors were very, very clear about. We, we tend to think that things have always been this way, that we are somehow the highest evolution of consciousness. And we don't realize that the more you look into shamanism, the more you realize we forgot everything that we knew and that we were, frankly, more connected and in some ways more conscious, more accurately aware in our past on this planet than we are now. So how did we get so confused? Our ancestors were so clear. They were so clear that they shaped the norms of their community around supporting individuals in the cultivation of their souls and their egos, their hearts and their unique purpose, their ability to walk the earth and swim the ocean at the same time. Our ancestors got this. It was not a big deal. Yet we are so confused today that we are creating mental unwellness that as it goes unchecked in people's lives turns into mental illness. And I'm not saying that's the source of all mental illness necessarily, but we're the problem. You know, nature considers to move along just fine. We're the only ones going crazy. So let's take a nature pill here and get a grip. So, so without being a smartass, um, I'll dial down here a minute and share this next little bit of my uh, show here today is from a man, Theodore Rozak who wrote a book called The Voice of the Earth, an exploration of eco-psychology back in the early 90s. You know, once again, so why are we still so confused? But anyway, so back in the early 90s. And he's done much more good work since then, and he's certainly not the only person in that field. Um, and for those of you who are struggling with mental health issues and need professional care, consider choosing practitioners that aren't just going to default to drugging you. Find practitioners that perhaps specialize in something like eco-psychology or those who have their own experience in shamanism. I mean, go find a practitioner that might perceive of your sanity or lack thereof differently. And this is really the essence of the show today is perhaps our very understanding of what is sane and what is mad in and of itself is faulty. And with that said, then, the main point of today's show is that by simply being in nature without 
technology and other distractions. Nature may be able to help us to return to our true nature in, in a way that is simpler and uh, cheaper, frankly, than anything else, as long as we, of course, don't destroy all nature before we can figure out how valuable it is. So what matters, deep, this matters really deeply because for all of our theories about mental health, spiritually, we need to understand that anxiety, fears and anxiety, these things that churn and drive people's mentally ill states, they, they, they are rooted in distance from self, in, in, the, in the ego, the identity, the, the, the sense of I, I am, self, being far, far, far away from the true self, from the true nature. So if we can slip back into our true nature by just being out in nature, turning off all of our distractions, then perhaps it would be easier to find our way back to ourself. So Rozak explores the bond between the human psyche and the living planet that dreamt us and all of life into existence. And he asks the question in this book, The Voice of, of the Earth, what is the link between our own mental health and the health of the greater biosphere? There, is a powerful or there are powerful relationships between psychology, ecology, and current scientific insights into the systems in nature. So consider Will Tegel's book, The Mother Tongue, Intimacy in the Ecofield. Here is another person, um, a, a, another compassionate man with a good heart and a great brain and a lifetime of experience, coalescing all of that into, into a similar message. It's all right here, people. We're the ones who got confused. It's all right here. We need to return to the mother tongue. Hear the voice of the earth. Interesting how similar these titles are, no? Right? And, um, and I bring up Will because we've done a show with Will, the, and it's in the archives. And because go get his book. Read it. I mean, if we are to craft a new story for the people in this new world, we must understand these things differently. And these people have given the, the, the wealth of the maturity of their lives to these ideas. So let's learn from them. So what, what Rozak uh, illuminates in the voice of the earth is our rootedness in this greater web of life and the relationship between our own sanity and this larger than human world. In other words, he's exploring a shamanic understanding of nature and the earth and our place in the oneness of things and how understanding and experiencing this is essential to our mental health. So, again, experiencing our connectness and connectedness and oneness with things, knowing there's an ocean, going into the shallow waters, being in it, not drowning in the shallow waters, being in the ocean. That is essential to our mental health. So let's look at the centuries-old split between the psychology and the ecology. It has not always been that way. However, this evolved out of the first split, which was the split between spirituality and life. And this, this came in the rise of religious dogma and this weightiness of religion that um, became unbearable, actually. So there's a split there first between an actual spiritual practice that is supporting life and religious dogma. And so because of that, we have another split that comes from that, which is the split then between this religion and science. Because reasonable people are saying, hey, this isn't working. And so this blossomed into this age of enlightenment, interestingly, but it's really kind of an age of thought, enlightenment you know all of this of course is happening because human beings are trying so hard to get away from nature to control nature to to um create an entirely human world a quote-unquote civilized world and in this act of course we have become barbaric and insane in our refusal to accept the need to live sustainably on this planet. It is absolutely barbaric and insane thinking. 
that supports any of the ideas that refuse to surrender themselves to an understanding that we must live sustainably on this planet, all of us together. Okay. So anyway, so we've got this, we've got the running away from nature. And so then we've got this uh, religious dogma. So we get a split between spirituality and life that becomes too heavy. And we get a split between science and religion. And eventually life rolls on and we end up with Freud. And Freud is the beginning of the shaping of our contemporary psychological theories in a big way. Now, these are just theories, but much of our mental health care system are based on these theories. So Freud offered us a bleak vision of nature, which uh, continues to haunt mainstream psychiatric thought. Freud said, quote, nature is eternally remote. She destroys us coldly, cruelly, relentlessly, unquote. Now, I've talked about this quality as wilderness because there really is a difference between nature and wilderness these days. And I've talked about how actually this wilderness is a tonic for the wilderness of the heart, that the very fact that the wilderness can destroy us is what makes our heart feel at home in it because our heart at its most powerful can destroy us and does again and again. And that is precisely how it grows stronger and wiser. The adult heart needs freedom and it needs this wilderness to love fully. It is the child who needs comfort and safety and the child who receives that comfort and safety in childhood can move on in life and actually mature. The child who does not is still waiting inside of you for you to give it that comfort and safety so that you can become an adult and your adult heart can awaken to the wilderness that will allow it to come alive and be truly free to love passionately, wholeheartedly. And I, I don't think Freud understood this in this way. But I do think our shamanic ancestors did. So, for example, in my little tiny shamanic world. So just last week, I was working with um, my year two people as they're entering this big, unwieldy, robust, funny, crazy, chaotic week of diving in, literally diving into their shadow energies. So this is diving off that ledge where the blue water becomes the black water and really diving into your own dark waters. Okay, so there we are. So this is also an enormous exploration day by day, deeper and deeper into really understanding how to allow ourselves to follow crazy logic which is very hard for us as humans. We adore logic. It makes sense to us. We abhor crazy logic. And yet it is crazy logic that will allow us to function in this wild realm. And for that, we call in and learn to work with particular shamanic helping spirits that allow us or guide us in that crazy logic so that we can start to get the hang of it and understand how it feels and understand how to work with it. So it's 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 a robust beautiful, passionate, messy, creative, dance-filled week. And at some point, we have to go home. So how do we get there in a good way? So in this particular work, we are always guided by spirit to go to the water, to cool and reconcile these processes that we've stirred up so that we can just, just sort of smooth them a bit and get them home without leaving a great trail of shadowy chaos in our wake for no particularly good reason. That we want to find a way just to create um, a peace in that moment and take these processes home where we'll need to continue to engage with them until they are ultimately um, unfolded. And so we always end up going to the water one way or another. And in this particular last week, we went to this, this place in nature that was really just um, a stream or a creek. 
running in this little gully, not even a gorge. I mean, just down the hill a bit. And so we've been in this crazy logic, dancing, art-making mess of a process. And we go for a walk, rattling along. We walk for about 10 minutes. We walk down the little hills, and we step down into the stream bed. And within three breaths, everyone is already cooling down. Everyone is already calming down. Everyone is already, without doing anything other than stepping into this, the bed of this stream, moving into a place of stillness and silence. And the more you become aware of the place, this little stream all f- wooded and birds and wildflowers and cool because we're down here by the water. The longer we're there, the stiller, the more silent each of us individually becomes. And the more we become aware that this place in nature is not remotely silent. It's noisy. There's birds and stuff going on all over the place. Bugs, frogs. It's noisy. And yet it feels silent. And it feels like stillness in this great chaotic motion we've stirred up inside of ourselves. The place in nature feels still. And yet the trees are moving in the breeze. The stream is running through. The place isn't still. It's in constant motion. And yet by stepping into nature, a place that is not silent, we grow silent. A place that is not still, we find stillness. All we did was take two minutes to walk down a path and then stop and be. And the thing about this stillness and silence that we found in nature is that it created stillness and silence in us by saying yes to our crazy chaotic shadow process. By saying yes to that fire, yes to that mess, yes to that transformation and be at peace and be still and silent. It was a big yes to all of it without canceling anything out. It brought us peace and simplicity and kind of a smooth sailing home, but without a peace that comes from stuffing something or denying something or ending something. So, so what we have here is a psychological theory You know, Freud's theory that nature is cruel and relentless and cold, that does not actually prove to be true. That we have a psychological theory that tells us more about the time it arose from and the minds of the men it arose out of than it tells us about our time. Anxiety is distance from self. And being in nature helps us to return to our nature, exactly as we are, but to return to our nature, which helps us to close the distance between the person we think we are and the person we actually are. Now, granted, Freud's authority is not what it used to be, but few modern therapists would question his definition of sanity from his book, Civilization and its Discontents. So there Freud says, quote, normally there is nothing of which we are more certain than the feeling of our self, of our own ego. This ego appears as something autonomous and unitary, marked off distinctly from everything else. One can differentiate between what is internal, what belongs to the ego, and what is external, what emanates from the outer world. And in this way, one takes the first step towards the introduction of the reality principle, which is to dominate for future development. Now, while none of us could get through a day without making some common sense discernment between the world out there and the world in here, Freud believed that the quasi-mystical experience, I'm quoting again, the quasi-mystical experience of union with the external world is appropriate for the baby in the mother's arms, erotic, if it survives into adult life. 
in a word, Freud was wrong. Now, he was right about wanting to stay a baby. Granted, but oneness is different than the factual need a child has for its parents, and in particular the mother, which frankly equals food. The oneness that we seek through our practices, be they shamanic or otherwise spiritual, um, is about finding our place as an individual in the greater reality of life. That oneness is not equivalent to the experience of the dependent child on the parents. This oneness is about coming into right relationship with ourselves, with others, with our environment. Freud could not have been more wrong on this very central point. That the mystical experience of union with all things is reality. Real, energetic, scientifically and shamanically proven reality. Union with all things. Oneness is the reality. The idea of the mind is just that. An idea. Fleeting and changeable. So we must question this idea of reality that comes from these theories and, and, and in that the definition of sanity. So there's a, there's a really important work by Erica Bourguignon. And a work, in this work she shows that 93% of the cultures around the world have a culturally sanctioned altered state. And they understand that entering this altered state regularly is necessary to maintain the sanity of a healthy adult mind. And so the United States, for example, the Western world, uh, is one of the very small percentage of the cultures on the planet that do not understand this. And so in this particular – I'm raising my hand now. So in this particular point – I am not part of my culture because I clearly and distinctly understand that not only does my sanity depend on my capacity to enter altered states and to be in relationship with spirit to help me understand what the hell is going on here, but the sanity of many of my clients and students is based on that as well. Not only my ability to do that, but their own ability to do that for themselves. We require the regular entry into altered states, the regular disciplined practiced entry into altered states to maintain a healthy mind. To not do so is to induce an insanity, a way of being in the world that cannot be well. And and this very distinction is the reverse of what all of our psychology, psychological theories are based on. This is a problem. It's a big problem. So, do not allow your actual sanity to be questioned by wrong assumptions of a time that we have grown out of, both spiritually and scientifically. For Freud, madness began with any mental state in which, quote, the boundary line between the ego and the external world becomes uncertain or in which it is drawn incorrectly. Any mental state, Freud was wrong. This may be true for some mental states, but not all. And furthermore, we may need to learn from medicinal altered states to truly heal the unhealthy altered states. So I, like others before me, question this theory. I prove it incorrect every time I journey on my client's behalf. How could I not question it? We, the people, need to ask now, based on our current understanding of spirit, our current understanding of science, our current understanding of our place in the world and all that we have wrought in the old world, we must ask anew, Where does madness begin? I wish my grandfather, a psychiatrist, were alive today so that I could have this discussion with him. Grandpa, where does madness begin? 
I wish he had lived long enough for me to mature enough to ask him this question. But he did not. Instead, he is nourished in my ancestral altar, and he joins me in the journey world to assist me with the ancestral healing work that I do. And what does this say about madness? Where does madness begin? Paul Shepard, an environmental philosopher and author, questions Freud's reality principle. Shepard suggested that Freud's rule of thumb dichotomy between objective and subjective may actually be one of the deep roots of our ecological crisis. Far from being the basis for sanity, it may represent a psychic trauma that has distorted uh, the more balanced relationship between human beings and their natural habitat that existed in pre-civilized times. Walter Christie, assistant chief of psychiatry at the Maine Medical Center, observed that the illusion of separateness we create to utter the words, I am, is part of our problem in the modern world. We have always been far more a part of great patterns on the globe than our fearful egos can tolerate knowing. To preserve nature is to preserve the matrix through which we can experience our souls and the soul of the planet Earth. When we drop our illusion of separateness, as we have discussed on many shows, and step out in our not fearful ego, we find ourselves one with nature, belonging, connected, and slowing down to a walking pace. So the issue is not really man versus nature, but man versus his fearful ego. And this takes us back to the child and the place that our fears began. Jungian analyst James Hillman conjectured that the environmental degradation we see around us in the external world might be studied by psychiatrists as projections of psychopathic symptoms in much the same way they examine disturbed dreams or sexual fantasies. Just as there are sources of anxiety and neurotic behavior that can be treated only if the entire family is brought into treatment together, eco-psychologists suspect that there are forms of neuroses that trace back to our entrenched alienation from the natural environment. Common qualities of contemporary life that we take entirely for granted as normal and fight for our right to have, like processed sugar and too much coffee, may be the cause of an urban madness that exacts a heavy toll upon both the person and the planet. Our older ancestors showed us that Rozak's words, sanity depends upon access to wilderness and natural wonders, upon the companionship of trees and beasts, and above all, upon the reverence we experience in the presence of the unhumanly magnificent. Our older ancestors showed us this way. These men, happened to all be men that I've mentioned today, but these men are simply reminding us what our ancestors knew. The cosmology of the late 20th century has come to see that the universe has come to see the universe as an evolving hierarchy of physical and biological systems that reach back to the initial conditions that followed the Big Bang. And this echoes the shamanic creation stories from around the world. And so science and shamanism have always been saying the same thing, simply in different languages. In place of cosmic alienation, an alienation from nature, alienation from ourselves, alienation from God, a alienation which is the very root of this lie of separateness, preached so strongly in that heavy-handed religious dogma, right? But this, 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 in this place, though, of cosmic alienation, you know, if there were no alienation, in its place we have life and a mind as fully at home in the universe as any of the countless systems from which life and the mind evolved. Somewhere within this emerging vision of cosmic wholeness lies a new ecologically based conception of sanity. We must live sustainably. That is the only sane thought process. 
So somewhere in these emerging ideas lies a new ecologically based conception of sanity. And I will meet you there. So the medicine for our contemporary madness is right here, all around us, offering the stillness for our jangled nerves, the beauty to inspire our despairing hearts, and the magnificence to remind us why we are here, why we can no longer indulge our broken heart and do less than what we came here to do. Nature is all around us, constantly, offering us what we need to remember who we are and why we are here. Nature plays a critical role in returning us to our sanity, our heart's deepest truth, and our own true nature. So let's look again at some of these common issues of mental unwellness that people stumble into as they begin to wake up. And I mentioned these last week. Um, So let's look at how nature can bring us remedies. So one of the first ways of waking up uh, is starting to notice coincidences. And often what happens is people can't stop noticing. And they keep noticing and noticing and noticing. They have a belief, a new age knuckleheaded belief that every coincidence matters exactly the same. And the truth is every coincidence doesn't matter. Everything that crosses your path is not necessarily yours to process. There is way too much going on here in the world now, today, especially if you live in an urban environment, to believe that that's really all about you. But at the same time, coincidences do matter. What is important is that we must learn to discern what coincidences matter and what shall I just let pass through. And if we don't learn to discern, we spin off the handle chasing down every coincidence that happens, going in a million different directions at once, and not, with all of that effort, not actually living our soul's purpose. But if you get silent and observe nature, you will notice an interesting paradox. Everything is connected to everything in an elegance we humans can only pray to recreate. And in that magnificent connection and seeing how everything connects with everything else and it all works together in this this magnificent, elegant beauty, everything is eating something. And that is the paradox, that there is life and death. There is a food chain. It is exquisite. And interconnected. It is beautiful and it is recycling and it is perfectly recycling in a way that nothing is wasted. But we cannot have this exquisite interconnection that supports life and and really get it if we don't recognize the fact that everything's eating something. Even the plants. Everything's eating something else all the time. It's an exquisite dance of transformation of life and death. And so this interconnection that supports life, supports life, period. So those are the only coincidences that matter in your life, is the ones that support your life, your true life. So if you are chasing coincidences in 150 different directions at once, you are not supporting life. You are spinning off into orbit around your life. And so remember, the coincidences that matter are the ones that support your life and that you must be grounded in your body to discern the difference and then to work with those coincidences in a way that continues to more deeply support your life and in that, the co-creation of your life with the great teacher, life itself, with the spirit world, however you conceive of that. So another typical mental health challenge is the access to too many ideas that have been stripped of context and frankly too many ideas um, on too a high level on too high level teaching without having mastered the basic fundamental teaching. So a good rule of thumb 
is don't give weight to ideas you have not lived yourself, period. Do not let your mind attach as reality to any idea you have not lived. And that, ladies and gentlemen, will slow you down. Living things takes time. And that is the point. Live at the pace of life, not at the pace of your brain. The brain can spin ideas, especially when it is being driven by fear, and especially when those fears are fears you are unaware of. And for any one of you that is living in your head, that is exactly what you are doing. Spinning fears. And the fears are spinning your perception of life. So do not believe anything you have not lived yourself. Slow down. Take an idea in as a hypothesis. Live it. Test it. Try to break it. Take your time. Go no faster than you can walk. Find the context that connects that idea to all other life, not just human life. Because if it's only good for humans, it's probably not good for other living things. And just like killing bees and stuff like that, people... We really need to care right now a lot about all the other living things because if they're not living, we are not living either. I mean, go see the road, people. Cormac McCarthy. See the movie. Read the book. Get the book on audio. It's great to listen to. But we are not going to survive if we don't begin to take care of all the living things. So any idea that only supports human life is probably a bad idea. And so this is what I mean. Slow down, people. Apply these ideas to your life. If you can't, you probably don't, A, it's a bad idea or it's a really good idea, but you don't yet know the fundamentals that put this idea into context. So slow down. Learn the fundamentals. If it still holds up after all of that, then maybe you can start to believe it. But... If there is no parallel for that idea found in nature, then you need to deeply and rigorously question what you are thinking. Because if it is not also found in nature, it is very likely a lie. And I see too many young people with access to so much information, with so little context and no relationship with their body with their passion, with their heart, spinning ideas about whether they are the shadow or the light or this or that and flipping back and forth and around in circles, reading this blog and that blog, never once realizing they aren't living any of it. Live it. Slow down. Take one idea and live it. Find its context. Connect it to other things. Does it survive being lived? Most of it won't. And right now, it's all running you in circles. So this leads me to a purely contemporary mental distress. And this is the messianic complex. The one, the great one in nature is found in wholeness. It is in how everyone and everything gets along. And by that, I also mean eats each other. But the one is not an individual. In nature, the one is the all of it. That idea that the one is an individual is so purely a human construct. And it has driven so many beautiful minds into dysfunction such that we have lost the gifts of that person's heart. You are not special in that way. No one is. There is no individual one. You aren't the Messiah. No one is. No one was. What you bring to the world is not that kind of uniqueness. It's not your spiritual awakening. I mean, haven't you all noticed that everyone gets the same messages when they're waking up? It's not interesting. 
unless you're the one actually getting it in the moment, unless you're the one actually in that moment waking up, it's brilliant. But it's really boring for someone who's already woken up to hear it over again. What you bring that is unique is the gifts that will arise as an expression of your soul's purpose. In that way, you are the one and only. But not as the Messiah, as you being that one piece in the great oneness. What is your part in the larger all that is? This is what nature teaches us. Nature is not messianic. Humans are. And they are deeply misguided. Be your part passionately, without hesitation to blossom. Leave your seeds. Inspire others. Give away and nourish the soil. Be your unique part of the oneness in all ways, through all seasons. Be part of the oneness. You're not it alone as an individual. None of us are. No one has been. No one will be. Oneness is in the whole, and this is what nature teaches us. Nature reminds us to find our place in it and be that without hesitation. Blossom like the flowers. Plant your seeds. Nourish the soil. Be part of the whole cycle, but be part of it. You're not it. Nature also teaches us about dynamic balance. And we see our misunderstanding about this because we are so disconnected from nature, so refused to understand the complementary dualism inherent in nature that Taoism tries to help us to understand. But we are so resistant to this idea. And this is at the root of so much of the really serious mental illness that we are experiencing in our contemporary Western world. For example, the schizophrenic. Humans need a natural ego death. And so what often happens is these contemporary young people are so overdeveloped mentally and so underdeveloped spiritually, so sure there is no ocean, and so unprepared to find themselves in it. That, and then in addition, they are overburdened by religious dogma that is useless at this juncture when we find ourselves in the ocean. It over it, and we are underburdened with true egoic health. In other words, we are just fundamentally, our foundation itself is insecure and collapsing. And so in this natural ego death that is meant to happen in every child's passage into adulthood, the soul fails the battle. The soul fails to rise above the wreckage of the ego because it's too pitiful from its malnourishment in the way that we are raising people. Because we don't understand the complementary dualism in things, the balance inherent in nature. And it is critically important for this archetypal battle that is the initiation into adulthood, this, this dynamic between the ego and the soul, for the soul to win. The soul is meant to prevail, to kill off that childish ego and allow a healthy adult ego to arise from those ashes. So nature constitutes, I mean, nature continues in spite of us to create places of magnificence, places of inspiring beauty, and places of great stillness and silence. And these places are our medicine for so much of what ails us in the contemporary world. So here in the Northern Hemisphere, it's summer. Go outside. <laughs> Leave all the things that make noise at home, even the music. Listen to the not-so-silent silence of nature. Listen for your own inner voice the voice of your true nature. Can you be silent long enough, be in the silence long enough to hear that voice, that voice that doesn't shout, it doesn't argue, it doesn't trash the other parts of yourself. Can you wait in nature's not-so-silent 
silence until you can hear the voice of your own true nature once again. And then ask it to show you the way to oneness and your place in the real reality. So I'd like to thank the ancestors for not giving up on us, for the earth for continuing to generate exquisitely beautiful nature around us in spite of us, for the sun and the sky and the sky energies that nourish it all, and for the heart that connects it all. Next week, our guest will be Sandra Ingerman, and she's going to join us to discuss soul retrieval trainings and what to look for in a teacher for soul retrieval training and what to look for in a practitioner of soul retrieval work. And so I invite you all, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, go outside. (laughs) Go out in nature. Find a moment of stillness and silence and have a great week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.